remember all this stuff and retrieve it during your exams. So this is a very relevant topic and we're going to talk about how you do that, how you learn and remember all these different facts and information and retrieve them when you need them to fulfill your goals. So we will also talk about ways in which memory breaks down in clinical disorders that we call the amnesias. Now I put for you an article. This is only for those who are fascinated by memory and these topics and want to read up by the top memory researchers out there, a review published in 2014. You won't be tested on it. It's just supplemental reading for those of you who are passionate about memory. To start with, I want you to learn these words. You have 12 seconds left to memorize these words. I'll give those of you who just got in a couple more seconds. Okay. You don't have to click. You don't have to click, just remember these figures. Remember the words, remember the figures. You got them? Not much time there. Just hold on to them for a while, okay? <laughs> We're gonna talk about different types of memory, okay? What you just did was declarative memory, explicit memory. You just try to actively encode an explicit piece of knowledge, verbal and visual, for later recall. That is usually held in contrast to what we call procedural, implicit memory. So declarative memory, facts about the world. Our lexicon is a form of declarative memory. Events, autobiographical events. Um, your first kiss is an autobiographical memory, for those of you who have had that. Maybe some of you haven't yet. <laughs> um, birthday parties, weddings, those are all events, autobiographical memories. And those fall under the category of declarative, explicit memory. Now we also have implicit memory, and that involves learning things like how to ride a bike, skills, priming, which is more of an experimental type of, you know, you give someone a prime and, and to see if, if it influences their later behavior. But you all know conditioning really well, really well at this point after all your learning theory lectures. Conditioning is a type of procedural, implicit memory. Now for this lecture, we're going to spend the rest of the time focusing on neural systems underlying declarative explicit memory. And that's really useful because that's the type of memory you need for taking exams. So you're going to understand the neuroanatomy of how explicit declarative memories are stored. So how do we know the neuroanatomy? Most of the work comes from human lesion studies. Animal studies do contribute, but some of the, the, the most important studies have actually been in humans with lesions that have helped us understand the role of different structures in memory. The most infamous is H.M. We can say his name now. He's passed away and his name has been released, Henry Mollison. He was 
someone who had epilepsy throughout childhood that was so severe, um, and at the time, EEG uh, was around, and so he was studied and found to have a hippocampal, a mesial temporal epilepsy, and he was one of the first patients to undergo a bilateral hippocampectomy, a bilateral mesial temporal lobe surgery by Henry Scoville in Montreal Neurologic Institute. So this was kind of, it was on the cutting edge of epilepsy treatment to actually remove the areas causing the seizures. But what do you think happened when we took out, or not me, when Henry Scoville, Dr. Scoville took out both hippocampi and HM? He became profoundly amnestic, okay? So here's the MRI. So both hippocampi were completely removed. And you can see here in the sagittal slice, so his coronal missing all of its cerebral spinal fluid here where his hippocampus should be. And here on the sagittal, we see, again, the no hippocampus. And you can see his actual brain because it's been studied at length since he's passed away and showed that both hippocampi were removed. So HM was studied at length by Brenda Milner, a famous neuropsychologist. And um, what they found, one of the most interesting distinctions, that HM still had procedural memory. He still could be conditioned. He still could learn new skills. For example, this is what's called a mirror reading task, or mirror drawing, sorry, mirror drawing task, where he could look in the mirror and learn to draw backwards, and that his performance got better over time, less errors. And so that type of task is considered to be more of a, an an action, a skill, a learning, a habit task. Um, so that was different, and that was what helped us differentiate implicit procedural memory from declarative memory, because HM could not remember anyone after his surgery that he met that was new. He couldn't remember anything that happened after his surgery. He had a working memory. He could you know, remember things in the, in the, on the span of a few seconds to minutes until something else distracted him, and then he completely forget it. So he remained then forever a man in his 30s, right, because he could never actually remember growing or any new, he had no memory for new events after his surgery. So it became profoundly amnestic. And how many of you have seen 51st Dates? Okay, so he was like the character in 51st Dates who couldn't remember anything, but that's totally fictional in terms of every night you know, forgetting everything and then having to, to, to relearn things the next day. Memory doesn't work like that. We're going to talk about the temporal gradient for in which we forget things without a hippocampus, and it wouldn't look like 51st Dates. That's a movie, not real. It would look like, though, one of the characters in that movie who could only remember things for a few seconds and then would forget them. That's typically what a, hippo, a bilateral hippocampal amnesia would look like. They just can't hold on to new declarative information or events, autobiographical events. So... When we learn new declarative information, there is a process called encoding. Right now, all of you are, are encoding these words. So you are just encoding the different aphasias. They're active, it's in your working memory. And then you go through this process where you consolidate the information. So you're encoding it, um, and then later on you study it because you're hoping that you can consolidate it, that it can become a permanent memory chase so that when you get to the exam, you can retrieve it. So consolidation is when that information that you initially encoded gets, gets some sort of home, representation in the brain. It, it stuck its flag down. It says, I'm staying, okay, when it's consolidated. And then you can actually retrieve it when you need it. 
So the typical memory process that sounds, you know, something comes in through the senses, whether it's visual, auditory, and um, you rehearse it in short-term memory, and hopefully encode and consolidate, and then you retrieve it from your long-term memory store. So the, it can also be conceptualized like this, where you encode and then you retrieve. So if I just quizzed you on something, right, and you just retrieved it, what we're learning now, which is a really cool new area of memory research, is that in the act of retrieving it, you're actually helping to consolidate it. So all this self-quizzing we keep hearing about from DES, and everyone tells you self-quiz, self-quiz, flashcards, self-test. That's actually retrieval-based learning, because when you retrieve it, you're actually helping your brain consolidate it. Okay? So you can, be, you can conceive of encoding, consolidation, retrieval, or encoding, retrieval, which then helps you consolidate. Okay, which of these words was on the list that I showed you? Let's see. Okay, so the reason why that was so hard, I'll show you the list. Okay, the word play was on the list, but it was right in the middle. Let me get my pointer. So that's not fair, it was right in the middle. It's actually easier if you remember the first words, the primacy effect and the recency effect as the last words, but the middle ones are tough. So that wasn't fair. And cake, you had a semantic error. So you, you selected one that was close in semantic space. It was right next door in your lexicon, right? You got cake, you got cupcake. So you retrieved the wrong one, essentially. It's just an error in lexical access. What's that? Okay. But that's not fair. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot these are for attendance. <laughs> yeah, okay. Right. Okay, ne next one. Which one of these shapes? I'll leave this here longer. We're comparing your verbal memory to your visual memory. Is your class, is your cohort, are you visual learners or are you verbal learners? Let's see. Tacta. <laughs> okay. Wow. So there were less they were less to recall. There were only four, and the word list was longer. So we have a little bit of a confound, but looks like you guys are pretty good visual learners because that was the right one. So this introduces the idea of material specific memory. So it's declarative memory, but it's memory for verbal or visual material. And you can see that breakdown in neurologic disorders where people can have preserved visual memory, impaired verbal, or vice versa. Okay, so let's talk about some of the amnesias. Now one important thing, one important concept we know from HM is that he showed a retrograde amnesia. Retrograde amnesia is not being able to remember things that happened before the surgery. So if we took out his hippocampus, and the hippocampus does memory, helps us consolidate new information, why was he not able to remember things before? As a matter of fact, it showed a temporal gradient, which means that 
he could not remember anything right before, but his memory got better the two, for the two to three years prior to the surgery. So what that introduced was some, a really cool concept in memory research, was that the hippocampus is not just doing its job when you first learn things. It's continuing to help you consolidate the information up to two or three years. It's still working on it, right? So if you take out the hippocampus, whatever it was working on is not going to be consolidated. So what happens after the hippocampus is really done working on it? It becomes a long-term memory trace. And that means it's hippocampal independent. And so it's, in the cord it's represented in the neocortex at that point. But for the first two or three years after events that you're still, if you're rehearsing them, if you're still thinking about them, remembering them, you are still encoding it with your hippocampus. So HM couldn't remember anything right before the surgery, but he could remember things two to three years before. And he could remember things from his childhood, no problem. That's remote memory. So this is called the temporal gradient. And it was a fantastic clue into what the hippocampus is actually doing. It's still working on our memories for up to two to three years after we learn something. So you need your hippocampus after you learn something to help you take that memory and turn it into something long-term permanently stored long-term memory in the brain. That's called retrograde amnesia, and the temporal gradient is that we get better, or we're better at, if we take out our hippocampus, we can remember things from the past, but not recent. So if you have someone with dementia, Alzheimer's dementia, and they've lost their hippocampus, or someone with a encephalitis, um, that they've lost both hippocampus, they are gonna have more trouble for what will happen right before the damage, and people with Alzheimer's have more trouble for what happened in the past few days, but they can remember their childhood with no problem. Now, this is robust. If a patient comes to you and tells you, you know, I remember what I ate for breakfast this morning. I remember what I just watched. I can remember a list of words, but I can't remember anything from my past. My memory is really bad from my past. That doesn't happen, actually. People with, with dementias, they have more trouble with the more recent memories because their hippocampus isn't able to consolidate more recent memories, but their past memories are okay. That's called retrograde amnesia and the temporal gradient. Anterior grade is when you can't learn new things. So if someone has a hippocampal lesion, they show some retrograde amnesia, but they also have anterior grade amnesia. They can't learn new things. So you can give them a list of words. What I just gave you, those visual figures, you're not going to learn them if you have an anterior grade amnesia. You're not going to encode them. without. So a hippocampal lesion will have some retrograde and anterior grade amnesia as well. So these are some different types. We've talked about infantile amnesia and the fact that when you're a baby, you don't remember because you don't have your hippocampus yet. Transient global amnesia is this very interesting phenomenon, poorly understood, that it can occur maybe due to a TIA, so this means transient ischemic attack, TIA, or migraines, or stress, where someone has this temporary loss, an global loss of memory, where they can't remember anything, let's say, that's happened to them before um, in the past few years, or they can't learn new things, but it's temporary and it passes. And then their memory goes back to normal and they show no deficits in anterior grade memory. But they may not remember, they may have a retrograde amnesia for anything that happened during that period of transient global amnesia. So this is not that common, but it does happen. And again, they lose the memory for the time that they had that transient global amnesia, but they don't have permanent deficits in, they don't have a permanent anterograde amnesia. They go back to baseline. 
Now, dissociative amnesia, we won't spend too much time on because you talked about it with Dr. Kirkby in it's a, it's a psychogenic amnesia. It's um, loss of memory because of the traumatic content of what the memory. So essentially, it's more of a psychological reaction. So these are things to be differentiating when someone comes to you with some sort of loss of memory. Another important type of amnesia is confusing because it has the word Wernicke in it, but we're not talking about a Wernicke aphasia now. We're talking about a Wernicke-Horsakoff amnesia. Another term for that is a diencephalic amnesia. Why? Because it involves damage to structures in the diencephalon, like the thalamus. Um, and it usually, typically, in clinical settings, will be seen in patients who have long histories of alcoholism, and it's related to a thiamine deficiency. So the symptoms include confusion, severe memory impairment, and what's called confabulation. Confabulation is interesting. They will just tell you things that are totally not true, things that happen. You'll ask a patient, oh, did you um, have any visitors? They'll say, oh, yes, you know, my, my family came by, my friends came by, I'm so popular. No one came that day. They, they just confabulate. They, and they don't have that error message that something went, that, that, that that's not actually true. So they have no insight into their memory deficit. And that's different from patients who have hippocampal-based amnesias, where they really know and they have insight into their memory loss. Yes? Um, they don't know. They're not normal lying. So he asked, how is confabulation different from normal lying? Confabulation, they don't know they're lying. They don't, they don't get that message in their brain that what they're saying is not true. In their brain, it has a stamp of truth to it. They believe it. That's called confabulation. Um, so there was another important um, amnesia that told us that it's not just the hippocampus that is really critical for memory formation. This was um, a soldier who was in the barracks, and his annoying roommate was cleaning his fencing foil, and he turned his head, and it went right in his nose and just knocked out this very selective portion of his thalamus, his left dorsomedial thalamic nuclei. And he was left with a profound memory deficit. Okay? So it was very circumscribed focal lesion to the thalamus. They did a later MRI, and they found that, yes, to the mammillary bodies, there was some damage as well, which makes it a little bit similar to Wernicke's Korsakoff. But in general, it was such a specific... Um, lesion and the hippocampi were intact that he was well studied at that point because the, the key or researchers were interested in what is the role of the hippocampus and what is the role of the thalamus and the diencephalon. And so that taught us that actually the thalamus is playing an important role in initial memory encoding and the hippocampus is playing an important role in consolidation. So what do I mean by that? I'm going to go through it a little bit more. We're going to differentiate a diencephalic amnesia with damage to the thalamus, mammillary bodies from a bilateral mesial temporal, a hippocampus, a hippocampal amnesia. So both have intact IQ and both have intact procedural memory, implicit memory. Both have a profound anterior grade memory deficit and a retrograde memory deficit. So this is not easy to differentiate, right? The only thing is that people um, with a diencephalic amnesia might show some difficulties remembering things in the past, and that's not the case with uh, bilateral mesial temporal. 
Bilateral mesial temporal, like an Alzheimer's type dementia, they will rapidly forget. If I gave you that list of words and you had an Alzheimer's dementia, they won't remember anything, none of the words, if you ask them free recall. They have what's called rapid forgetting. But the diencephalic amnesia, they have difficulties encoding new words and getting new words, but they, once they've consolidated, they can consolidate information because their hippocampus can help them consolidate whatever gets in, but they have difficulty getting information in because they're not able to attend and rehearse the information in the way that we would. So they both have impaired encoding because you need the hippocampus for rehearsal and you need the hippocampus and the thalamus and that whole network for encoding and rehearsal. But for consolidation, you really need the hippocampus. So whatever gets in with the diencephalic amnesia, they're able to hold on to, even though it's more impoverished. It's not as much as a normal brain. They have intact, um, so in this case, consolidation, impaired consolidation in uh, hippocampal amnesia. And here's the key differential, that for a diencephalic amnesia, they have poor insight and they confabulate, whereas bilateral mesiotemporal have okay insight. Okay, now we're gonna test your knowledge on those different amnesias. So this is a real case. He was a neurology resident, skiing, hit his head, had a scintillating scotoma, and forgot everything, in fact, in including the fact that his wife was pregnant. So he had no memory of events from the past year. Is that a retrograde or an anterior grade? Retrograde, he had retrograde amnesia for the past year. His CT was normal and no other neurocognitive deficits. Five hours after, he could recall three words. So if he can recall three words five, after, five hours after, there's no permanent damage in what? Anterior grade memory. So anterior, he doesn't have an anterior grade amnesia when he comes back to normal. And the next morning, he's totally back, but he's lost memory for those five hours around the in, injury. Uh, he said two to three hours before the injury and five hours after. So essentially, he's lost memory for that period of time when he had what we would call a transient global amnesia. So these cases are rare, but this is kind of how it would look or present, of course, with some variation. In this case, the migraines is the key um, in the history because this could have just been a severe migraine that for some reason, and still poorly understood, disrupts memory formation. Okay, now an engram is a memory trace. What do we mean by that? It goes back to this adage, Neurons that fire together, wire together. Neurons that are firing together, wire together, and form what we think is going to be a more robust memory trace in the brain. So an engram is just this idea that there can be some transient changes in synoptic function, maybe during initial encoding, but then long-term consolidation of information probably involves some permanent change to cellular neuronal networks. 
some permanent change, some synoptic linking of neurons that makes them want to fire together throughout eternity. That's in, in terms of a long-term memory trace. So if we think about an engram as, okay, we have a bunch of lines coming in, and we have all these neurons co-firing, and they give us, and they help us see the shape of a circle. Or maybe our visual cortex with all of its different columns for different line orientations in V1, they co-fire together, and they give us a percept of a cross or a square. This would all be considered an, an engram. In this case, just a visual trace, a visual memory trace. But most of the time with learning, it's a little more complex. We're binding a visual trace with an auditory trace. Like, for example, when a child is learning, you say, oh, this is a circle. It goes to school. We're taught this is a circle. So you need some binding of the visual with the auditory. Where is that done? Primarily in this hippocampal limbic system, memory system that we're talking about. So this multimodal binding of engrams is what we would call learning. So what is the role of the hippocampus in this? We know that um, when Scoville and Milner, so this is the team, Scoville was a surgeon, after they took out HSM's brain and he had this profound hippocampal amnesia, they did a series of studies and they showed that the further back they cut in the hippocampus, so the more they took out, the worse the memory impairment. Okay, so that pretty much confirmed that the hippocampus is critical. It wasn't just one case, it wasn't a fluke. The hippocampus is critical for long-term memory formation. Um, it's not just the hippocampus, it's actually all these entryways to the hippocampus, like the entorhinal and the parahippocampal region. So essentially, information comes in to the entorhinal and its synopsis in the dentate gyrus, okay? So here we have the perforant pathway, so new information, let's take that circle and the word, the auditory word circle and the visual trace, it's bound when sensory information comes in, right? It, it synopses in the dentate, and the dentate then synopses through mossy fibers to CA3. These are different hippocampal subregions, CA3, CA1, dentate. So we have a synopse in CA3, and then you have the Schaefer collaterals from CA3 that synopse in CA1, and then they leave the hippocampus through the subiculum to the fornix, and we have this nice loop through the limbic system, okay? And it's part of what we call the extended memory system would include not just the hippocampus, but the perirhinal, perihippocampal, because those are the entryways. So if you lesion the entorhinal, the perirhinal, the perihippocampal regions, you might as well be lesioning the hippocampus because no information is getting to the hippocampus. So when I say the hippocampal region, really some people prefer the term mesial temporal because it's also the entorhinal and perihippocampal that are critical because they're the way station to that trisynoptic pathway that we highlight here. So the hippocampus, okay, just to kind of summarize, the limbic system, we know this from our, our motions lecture, these are all regions of the limbic system. They're also primarily involved in memory. So we have information that comes in through the entorhinal to the hippocampal formation, exits through the subiculum to the fornix, and we have these loops that go through the thalamus, the dorsomedial nucleus of the thalamus, or through the anterior nucleus via the mammillary bodies. So when these are damaged, for example, in Wernicke's Korsakoff or diencephalic amnesia, you have impairment in this initial encoding and rehearsal because new information needs to, it's not just, it can't just come in once. Wouldn't that be great for all of you? If you could just hear something once and that was it. Unfortunately, you have to go back and study. You have to practice retrieving because that is actually looping, your limbic system loop for memory formation. You need your thalamus for that, you need your whole limbic system and the hippocampus for initial encoding. 
if you have a lesion, like NA had, he couldn't encode new information, right? So he had a lesion in the dorsal medial nucleus of the thalamus. So, but whatever got into the hippocampus, it may not have been practiced, rehearsed a lot, so it was impoverished, but he could still, it was still there. So if you test in some patients for, they have, if you give them some retrieval cues, they show they do have some long-term memory formation if their hippocampus is intact. Okay, I'm gonna show you a video that's gonna summarize all of this in a much more fun way than I do. I put some, some annotations there to help you. But I wanna make sure, Ralph, do we have the um, sound? Now Whoop. don't forget a loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. If you can't remember, I'll write it down for you. That's okay, Mommy. I won't forget. I remember. A loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. A loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. A loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. A loaf of bread, a container of milk. And a stick of butter. A loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. A loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. Sir, can I have a loaf of bread, a container of milk, and, and, gee, I can't remember. Can you remember what my mommy said? A loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. A stick of butter. I remembered. I remembered. Mommy, mommy, I remember. A loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. You have a good memory, honey. Thank you, mommy. Okay, so that's what you need to know at this point. Right? You have your whole memory loop there for declarative, semantic information. So that would be your explicit memory. You rehearse it. You practice retrieval, which then helps later become a fully consolidated memory trace. Now, who's conducting all of this, right? So we're talking about co-firing of neurons in different cortical regions. So there's got to be some sort of conductor for this symphony. The hippocampus is the conductor of all, so, so we need your visual areas active. We need to bind those to the auditory areas to make a nice, coherent engram with all of its lovely visual and auditory features. When you have an autobiographical memory, usually it's somewhat rich in, in detail. You can sometimes even remember smells and sounds and visions. So that's all this coordination between different sensory areas. And for the first couple years of consolidating that information, the hippocampus is the conductor, okay? So, and also not to forget the interrhinal and the perirhinal and, and, and perihippocampal, because those are also important regions that are conducting. They, they come online to help bind these cortical regions together as a unit in that memory. And these symphonies are rehearsed and rehearsed long enough over time, maybe while we're sleeping, the importance of memory consolidation when we sleep. There's this co-firing of regions, and they're forming a coherent memory trace until even if the hippocampus is taken out, they can play on their own. So it takes a long time for the band to get that good that you can take away the conductor, and it can still play on its own. If you take away the conductor too soon, it doesn't sound good, and it, can't, it doesn't work. So you need the hippocampus for a few years of consolidation to really encode in the long-term memory. So over time, there's some thinking out there that the, the, these memories become hippocampal independent, cortically represented, and that's considered more of a long-term memory that they can play in the absence of, let's say, um, a conductor. If the conductor is drunk, is out of commission, it can still play.
Now, what happens in epilepsy is a lot of times you'll have the conductor's drunk. He's, he's, he's saying the wrong things at the wrong time, and it sounds all out of whack. And memories are a little bit impaired if there's firing in the hippocampus during seizures. And so that's why people, even before they've taken the hippocampus out, can actually have some memory impairment because the, the conductor is kind of getting it all wrong because it's seizing instead of being able to function normally. Now, there are some models out there that challenge this idea of hippocampal independence. Some people believe every time you retrieve a memory, the hippocampus gets involved and comes online. So the standard consolidation memory says that essentially memories are stored independent of the hippocampus, like our long-term memories. But the multiple trace models say that every time we activate a memory, we bring the hippocampus online. It can actually help us change the memory. It, the memories are not like a coral reef. They're not static. The memories are dynamic. And each time we recall them, we can shape and change them with new information. That's a multiple trace theory. And so you know, and we've talked about reconsolidation, which is essentially that idea that if you bring a memory online, you're making it malleable, flexible to incorporate or reconsolidate with maybe new information. So that's a current level of memory research, and it's still being debated, the degree of hippocampal independence that memories have. So now we're going to go back a little bit earlier in your neuromodule, where you talked about synoptic plasticity with um, Noreen Alexander. And I want you to remember, what happens if you have short bursts of high-frequency stimulation? We just saw the trisynoptic pathway from the Schaefer collaterals to your CA1 cells. So CA3 to CA1. Neurons that fire together, wire together. Short bursts of high frequency, let's see. Okay, would you have, if you have high frequency stimulation, increase synoptic efficiency or decrease? Some of you said decrease, some of you said increase. Now when it's high frequency, when there's a lot, just remember that adage, neurons that fire together, wire together. That means that the, when you have more firing together, the postsynoptic cell is going to have increased sensitivity. Okay, so increased synoptic efficiency of the CA1. This is the, this is the postsynoptic cell. So this is increased sensitivity, right, to input from the CA3 cells through the Schaefer collaterals. So these were done in experiments, and they showed that high-frequency pulses potentiated a response. So after high-frequency responses, the postsynoptic cell was more likely to respond. And do you remember why that is? Just a quick review of um, long-term potentiation as a model for how memories are formed. So uh, maybe at the time it wasn't clear to you that, that it was more just how cells change in terms of they talk to each other, but now we're talking about this is how memories form. So and how at least we think memories form. So we have this release of glutamate from the CA1 neuron, and we have the AMPA receptors on the CA3 neuron that are receiving. Over time you have a summation, right? of the EPSPs, the excitatory postsynoptic potentials, and the inhibitory postsynoptic potentials. And when they sum at the axon hillock to a certain degree, you get, boom, depolarization. And what does that do? It unclogs the NMDA receptors. So you have the magnesium is clogging them, and you have a voltage-gated 
entry, which is essentially, so here, ligand gated is when the glutamate binds to AMPA receptors and you get the EPSP. But voltage gated is when you have depolarization of the cell and it blows out the magnesium from the NMDA receptors and now it opens them up for calcium influx. And when calcium comes in, that's when you get the changes in the cell. So that's when you get the activation of the second messenger pathways and you can influence then the actual structure. So you can have new AMPA receptors. You can have increased cell sensitivity to input if you've activated these second messenger pathways, because that's actually what leads to structural changes in the cell. Okay, so this is just a recap from that synoptic plasticity lecture. So we have increased synoptic strength efficiency in the postsynoptic cell. An increase in AMPA channel conductance would be an early effect. Then you might actually get, with enough activation, an increased number of AMPA receptors. So really, we're getting increased sensitivity. And then over time, increased number of synopses, new dendritic spines. Now we have a new, we have what's maybe after a couple of years of this, you have a change in the cell structure. Now it's very hard for these neurons not to fire together. They're so wired tight together at this point from all of this stimulation, co-stimulation. But we have this other phenomenon, which is long-term depression. Long-term depression is when you have low-frequency stimulation. So does anyone remember what happens when you have low-frequency stimulation from the CA3 to the CA1 cells? Okay, let's see. Five, four, three, two, one. Yes. Low-frequency stimulation decreases synoptic efficiency. So this makes it less likely that these cells will fire together. Okay? So in this case, same experiments, we have low-frequency stimulation, and we have a decrease, what's called long-term depression. So no change, right? In, um, if you have moderate frequency, there's no change, right? That's important because high frequency, so there's some just kind of random firing over time, and high frequency is essentially, oh, more firing. This is actually supposed to be wired together. Keep this wired together because we need to remember this. And then low frequency, long-term depression, is the opposite. It decreases the postsynoptic efficiency. So a decrease in AMPA channel conductance would be an early effect. A decrease in the number of receptors would be an early effect. And a decrease in the synoptic density would be a late effect. So that what this is saying is that over time, that these cells are going to be less likely to fire together. In our brain, we need cells to fire together consistently to make memory traces, and we need other cells that don't fire together. Okay, so that type of selectivity helps us remember. But some of you might be really annoyed by this because you say, wait a second. What, how does this, what, what makes more firing, more increase, how do, how do, how, what is the intermediate step that increases AMPA receptors or decreases? And here, this is an important role for calcium. So we know that if there's high frequency here, it activates protein kinases, which then phosphorylates proteins and leads to the formation of new AMPA receptors. However, if you have it, in this case, low frequency, you have a smaller elevation of calcium, and that smaller elevation of calcium leads to activation of protein 
phosphatases, and this is the key difference. Instead of protein kinases, protein phosphatases are activated, and that leads to un or dephosphorylation, unphosphorylation, and that leads to a decrease in the number of amphitryl receptors. So this is the summary. A postsynaptic neuron strongly depolarized, large amounts of calcium enter and activate protein kinases. When you have a, a postsynaptic neuron that's weakly depolarized, so there's low frequency, there's small amounts of calcium, and when there's small amounts of calcium, you have activation of protein phosphatases, and phosphatases causes dephosphorylation and the internalization of amphoreceptors. So you've had internalization of amphoreceptors, you have decreased synoptic efficiency. Okay, so in the end, this last section of the, the, the lecture is really to just tell you where the science is now and trying to understand how are these long-term memory traces formed. Our best understanding at this point is that neurons that fire together repeatedly, that are rehearsed together, will have the likelihood of firing together more in the future. And so when you go to retrieve them, you can retrieve a whole network of memory traces that have been co-wired. And that's what you would call your, your memories. Okay, so that's it. Thank you. I think we have a little bit of time for questions, but thank you. Mm -hmm.